Welcome to Free For All, the podcast that celebrates the magnificent 1967 TV show, The Prisoner. I'm Kai Ross. And I'm Chris Bainbridge. Welcome to this special episode. We're back. Welcome back. <laughs> it's been ages. It has, hasn't it? Months in It's been fact, months. Yes. I've not, I haven't seen you for ages. Well, you, you've been up to much? Just been sat here waiting for you to come back. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. I got, uh, got lost. So, yes, this is basically a Christmas special. It is. How ace. And actually recorded at Christmas rather than in summer. Really? <laughs> Like the BBC tends to do. Like, like, like Roy Wood recording his <laughs> yeah. like, sweating yeah. under eight layers of... Uh, his of... secular pop classic. <laughs> I wish it could be Christmas, Christmas every day. Which is one of my favourite music videos because the kids look genuinely terrified. They do, the end, they, they do, they do. And, and with good reason as well. Mummy, what are we doing? <laughs> I thought Wizard... Yeah, because remember it was on a like a now Christmas album. Mm. Like that. I remember thinking that Wizard was the guy saying, "There's a we- who's the weird guy? Is that Roy Wood talking? Not Roy Wood. What's his name? Yeah, um, it was Roy Wood. Yeah, uh, the guy's like, "What's going on with my children?" Well, I thought that was Wizard. I thought he was like a TV character, <laughs> and so I have no idea. I still have no idea what's going on in that. Brother of Ronnie, of course. Is he? No. Nah, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, do you remember way back in our first episode? I was a younger man then. You were. You were in shorts then. I was. And not because it was summer. No, no. It's just when you got legs like mine, it's a crime to keep them hidden away. Yes. <laughs> well, we looked at the uh, first airing of The Prisoner, didn't we? Yes. In uh, 1967, on that Friday night at 7.30. Yeah. And do you remember, we looked at what was on TV. We did. So, which episode do you think was broadcast closest to Christmas? Ooh, uh, many Happy Returns? No, it was It's Your Funeral. Ah! Of course, with Darren Nesbitt and Annette ah, uh, Andre. Ah, Darren Nesbitt, yes. So I'm going to go with IMDb's uh, listing. So that'll be for the London region yeah. for the 17th. That's a Sunday. Okay. Uh, 1967. So Sunday the 17th of December, 1967. Would you like to know what was on? I, I would be thrilled right. to know what was on. <laughs> so we're looking at the BBC Genome. At five o'clock, carols for Christmas. Uh, you're invited to join in and sing all the popular carols with the choir and audience at the Avan Lido in Abaravon. Oh, marvellous. So a, a Welsh-themed Christmas. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, what better? Quite a Nadolig Llawen. So that you could have watched that. And then at five to five, that perennial favourite, The Sutty Show. Oh, lovely. Yes. With, Har- with no Harry Corbett. Not, yes. Not Matthew, Harry at five past six, the news and the weatherman. Gosh, because that, that was the time. Yes, it was the time, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, quarter past six, meeting point. Bury the rev. So another what? church, another church-based. Bury uh, the rev. Yeah, bury the rev. It was bury the rev. It says, "Is the use of ecclesiastical titles uh, and dressing up in antique outfits a sign that the church is out of touch with the modern world?" There you go. Hard to say, really, isn't it? Quarter to seven. Sunday Story, Flynn of the Inland, Part 4, A Mantle of Safety, about a flying doctor. You'd have been killing yourself to get to the prisoner by this point. You would, wouldn't you? Because at 10.7, Songs of Praise, uh, from the town square in Axbridge in Somerset. Now we're at the time. So you could be watching The Prisoner, or you could have been watching on BBC One, Sarum. John Arlott appeals on behalf of Salisbury Cathedral. 
Sarum? Yeah, I think it was popular in Russia if it was about Salisbury <laughs> Cathedral. <laughs> well, they, those, those, those steps, the 396. Yeah, there was, there was apparently Three, yeah. a lot of people tuned in from Russia for that, being <laughs> Salisbury. Made extensive notes. But that was only five minutes. Yeah? Because at 25 past was Steptoe and Son. Ooh, Steptoe and Son against the prisoner. Against the prisoner. Ooh. I think it, I think by this point, maybe the prisoner was actually putting up a pretty good fight because the, the stuff they put up against it on when arrival turned up. You know, mm. The prisoner was really all the, the only game in town. But we are, I mean, t- we are on to it's your funeral now. Yeah, where quality arguably is slightly dipping, uh, as we've discussed. It depends well, uh, on your mileage. Your your own personal mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> and then at five to eight was Ironside. Oh, God, you see, I'm not sure I would have... And you couldn't tape any of them and watch them no, afterwards, could you? No, no it was The Prisoner, to... Stepton's on an Ironside in that slot. Oh, that's that's quite difficult. Because yeah. Ironside at that point was pretty pretty good. Yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I've got that on my... I've got an album called Great Action Themes. Yeah. And that's, that's on there. It's, yeah. it's awesome. But if you were if you're watching The Grampian in ATV region, you'd have been watching this on the Friday, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Well, that would have helped. Yeah, you could have had Cracker Jack with Leslie Crowther. I was going to say, yeah, Stu Francis was more on. Oh, was way, that was way later, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. And Ed Stupot Stewart, of course. Wasn't Jeremy Irons in it at that point? No, you're thinking of Playaway. Are you sure? I'm sure he was Cracker Jack. Maybe. He might have been. He was a children's TV presenter. I don't know. Come on, crack, it's Cracker Jack, everybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Junior points of view. Uh, but we get to 20 past seven, and uh, you would have been watching the news headlines. Ah. Uh, and then Dactari. Ah, is it, well, all I know about, is that the one with Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion? Yes, I think so. Was, how did they manage to get the iron to, the lion to have cross They just held a pencil in front of its face, so they moved it closer, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> no, I have no idea. <laughs> Very brave yeah. stunt coordinator. It says here, aided and abetted by Clarence and Judy. Ah, splendid. There you go. I remember Dactari being that show that had an annual that you'd hey, always find in a, in a bring every, a buy sale or something. In every charity shop, yes. in, the, in the box of annuals. Yeah, Dactari. There's always a couple of Beano ones in there from usually about 87, 88. And a Dactari, yeah. always. And I'd never seen time. that. It was way before our time. And it was kind of thing, I'm so glad that's not on today because I wouldn't have watched it. No? Ah, it didn't interest me. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> It was like Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, and that didn't interest me either. Was Skippy, was that basically Lassie, but with a, a jumping marsupial? Was yeah. it the, the same sort of thing? A kid would end up in a well? Yeah. And Skippy would sort it out? Essentially. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Did he befriend a, a couple and then at the end skip off? And they go, Skippy, don't go. It's something like that. You yeah. just go, and everyone knew what he meant. <laughs> I'm not gonna. It's, it's a worn joke, isn't it? It's a worn yes, joke. It is, it is, it is. But what's interesting about the prisoner? There's no religion. No. You can imagine on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, it would just be like any other day in the village. Yeah. Well, I think we talked about this in one of. I can't remember which one it was, but the sort of the missed trick hmm. element of that. You know, if you think about the way that they deal with specific social points, like politics and free for all, hmm. or education in the general at no point they went to they, they thought well, religion was so ripe yeah for the way that somebody could you know somebody could have uh, there could have been a, a, a religious a sort of cult like figure shows up and because McGowan was Roman Catholic yeah did he 
you know, did he feel that this subject was off topic? It was completely, I'm not going to go near this. I I suspect so. Mm. I suspect if somebody said, I've got this great idea, there's this religious figure shows up. Pat, Pat, bear, bear with me, bear with me. <laughs> A religious figure shows up and the village use him to manipulate the... Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Santa Claus comes down the chimney in, uh, and it turns out it's number two all along. <laughs> I love that. But, I mean, I suppose he took all the, the moral elements of religion or his personal religion and ethics and applied them to the prisoner. Yes, but it would have been... I don't know. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a missed opportunity, I think. They could have done something very interesting because, of course, you could have had the village using the religion or the, mm. or the cult to manipulate the way that the villagers think, to turn <laughs> villages against villagers and whatnot and sort of make a sort of bit of a religious... Satire, but I think something like that would have gone down like a lead balloon with Patrick McGowan. I suppose change of mind is the nearest kind of element we get to religion in this kind of cult behaviour. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose maybe you could just say, well, yeah, we've sort of done this with the whole unmutual thing. Mm. We don't really need to, we're kind of going over old ground. But, I mean, there's arguments that some, it, it's a tough one. No, I suppose they say never talk about politics or, or religion. But, you know, there's this, this argument that if you support Man United yeah. and you have, you have a son and you, you're very, <laughs> very pro-Man United, you're going to raise your child in the ways of Old Trafford. Yes. Blessed be to the Holy Reds. <laughs> Did you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Just, put, yeah. just kind of just take away the football and think about religion. But you see, it's, it's almost like, I don't want to use any word indoctrination, but it's a lot of people say, right, this is what I believe, that Man United are the greatest football team ever. Mm. And you, my son, are going to learn the ways yes. of, of, the foot, of the football. <laughs> yeah, very few people say, listen, son, I want you to go out and you discover for yourself who you mm. think is the best football team out there yes. and then lend them your support. Praise be as they sang in the stands <laughs> and bang their drums. <laughs> And went, duh, 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 duh. Those tribal rhythms. You can tell I'm not a football fan. No, no, I've not. No, Come on I've, the football. Yes. <laughs> Come on the red man. Yes. And, and we're out by this point as well, by the way, So in terms of recording dates. Of, of what? Uh, there was the, the, the World Cup. This, I think that's how, Jür, uh, Jürgen, that's how Jürgen Klinsmann pronounced it. Yes, because they'll be playing in the World Cup. And this is where I feel a bit like uh, Ian uh, Hislop on Have I Got News yeah. For You? Completely <laughs> start out of my talking depth. about modern music. Yeah. The what? The whom? <laughs> but, yes, no, it's not, it's not my act. But you, know, you know what I mean. It's, it, there is an indoctrination element of, in the village. You yeah. are indoctrinated into its lifestyle, into its demands, into its rules, into its into behaviour. There, there is an indoctrination that you see from those villages. Yeah, they have been indoctrinated. They've been, they've bought into it, or they've been brainwashed into it. Do you think that the villagers, even though they've been to a certain extent brainwashed, would have what would none of them have thought? Hang on, well, when's Christmas? <laughs> it's it's snowing. It must be kind of it's winter. It must be it must be Christmas soon. What do we do? What do we do? Yeah. Do we actually have a Christmas? Do they demand it of number two? Yeah, where's the work party? <laughs> <laughs> a work party. What do they, yeah. they imagine? You know, can we, can we imagine the, print, the prisoner work. work. Do. Yes. <laughs> okay, secret and, and of course, uh, the supervisor will be DJing. The supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> and this from Ronnie Wood. Yeah. And all the Christmas cards would be tedious, wouldn't they? To six. 
best wishes for the following year. Yeah, those ones you get where they haven't even written, hope you had a good year, just nothing. It just yeah. says, to Chris from Tony. Yeah. Like, to, to, to four from 67. Yeah. Or what they call round robins. That American tradition. Yeah. Well, we've had what a, a year. wonderful year. Yeah. <laughs> what a year it's been. Uh, little well. Seven, he's, uh, he's on his way up to, to apprenticeship with the, uh, the Green Dome with number two. Uh, he's going to be a, a rover technician. <laughs> we were thrilled to discover that we now know everything there is to know about the 1932 famine. <laughs> Unfortunately, everyone else in the village yeah. learned exactly the same facts and figures as we did. <laughs> the speed learn. <laughs> but, yeah. Apologies to our American listeners. It's not something that's really caught on in, in the UK, is it, this round robin? The round robin. I don't know. Uh, do, do Americans still do it? This is a bit of an 80s thing. We well, used to get them from... I've, I've got a friend who, who, who's from North Wales, and he now lives in, in Texas. Shout out to James, who, listen, who, has, listen, who has been listening. Um <laughs> Yeah, he's, I, I think he sent me one once, just as a. But I think it was more of a catch up. Thing. Yeah, but I think he actually told me about them. Uh, we, we we've got some friends in America, and occasionally we'll, we'll get the whole. Uh, well, well, yeah, yeah what, we what haven't a year been in contact been. with you for the last five years. Yeah. So this is what we've been up to. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're well. Yeah. <laughs> So they, they wouldn't have photocopiers then, wouldn't they? So nobody, no, no, could, nobody uh, could get drunk and photograph. Yeah. But the Telex machine from Dance of the Dead, somebody would be misusing that, wouldn't they? They'd be putting, putting people's names in there. Oh, you've had a death certificate, like, like in uh, Blackadder. Yeah. The joke, death certificate. People feeding sort of yeah. rude questions into the general. Yeah. Some, somebody's face goes, ice, you know, drains of blood. This came through on the Telex <laughs> in black. <laughs> And then they pull the cracker, but there's no bang. <laughs> number two, McKern's number two is like, ah, uh, oh, we can't have gunpowder yeah. in the village. <laughs> he'd make a great Father Christmas, though, wouldn't he? He would. McKern. He would. He'd be the... He'd, be the, uh... he'd have a grotto. You think? Yeah. <laughs> and Rosemary Crutchley from uh, Checkmate. Yes. She'd be the, 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 uh, the helper. Yes. Yeah. Can you imagine McGowan? Can you imagine how McGowan would have played Father Christmas? <gasps> that would be amazing. The least cuddly... Father Christmas in history. Little kid runs in. He's like, oh, Santa Claus slash Father Christmas slash Saint Nicholas. <laughs> Whatever you call yeah, what them. do you want? <laughs> I, I want a train set and I want a, a, a toy rover and I want a mini, mini moke. You won't get it! Because it's one of his famous McGooney line readings. Hmm. How? <laughs> How? <laughs> How? Patrick Love, it's just ho, ho, ho. No, no, no. No, ho, ho, ho. No, 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 I can do it my own way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a shame, actually. If, if, I mean, we're guessing they don't celebrate Christmas. I'm guessing that you would, we wouldn't have ever seen a Christmas episode. But I can imagine the, the village shop selling the Christmas cards because <laughs> it's a missed trick if you don't have the green dome as a Christmas pudding, <laughs> isn't it? It really is. Of course, of course. We got actually. I got you uh, last year. The, the, yes. Was it uh, Champagne had done? The, actually, yes, you did. Very kind of you. He created uh, this lovely sketch of a uh, the, the rover. Oh yeah, of uh, uh, Angelo Muscat. Yeah. And you open it up, and it's kind of it's got, got like a, an eye, hasn't it? There's a guy on eBay who, who uh, I bought mm. yours from, but he was very good. That's oh, maybe that's where I saw them on on eBay. But uh, yeah, they're reproductions, aren't they? The ones that Patrick McGoon sent out to the cast and crew. Yes. In in. Uh, that year, the following year, he couldn't yeah. be bothered. I hate you all. <laughs> You've made my life an absolute misery. <laughs> Speaking of Christmas cards, 
I think there's still time for you to buy your official free-for-all Christmas cards. Here we go. From Etsy. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a bit of fun. We started doing, doing quite well off those. Actually, Have you? Yeah, we had a lovely email. Oh, go on. Off uh, Nick Lawton. Yes. Shout out to you, sir. Thank you very much. He just wrote us a lovely email after he got the cards. Saying much she's enjoyed the show. So, uh, yeah, top of the morning to you, sir. Yes, you did share that with me. I thought it was lovely yeah. that Nick and his uh, workmate listened to us. Yeah, you listen to it at work. You're going to get, you're <laughs> no get in work trouble done. for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, hope it's, I hope it's like an office-based job. Yes. It's not like an abattoir. But <laughs> 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 they're laughing away, chopping some pig's head off with a some funeral part. big cleaver. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's crematorium. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's your funeral. Yay. I'm guessing, it, I'm guessing it's more of an office yes, case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that raises a question, actually. Because if the episode, you know, if the time scale is 1966, 67, 68, whatever, there'd be no Slade, there'd be no Mariah Carey, no Shaking Stevens. So what would he play? Uh, I, I think it would It just would have been Sinatra. And croony Dean stuff, Martin. wouldn't it? Dean Martin, Andy yeah. Williams. It would have been some weird, slightly sinister thing, like they would just play Let It Snow all the time. But re-recorded. <laughs> like B&Q. <laughs> you, you know when you go on B&Q and they're, they're all cover versions? Yeah, so they'd have to pay PRS. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they pay less royalties, don't they, because it's not the original recording. Yes. It'd be yeah. like that, wouldn't it? They'd do their own versions of songs and maybe change the lyrics like Sinatra did with Mrs Robinson. You know, he did Mrs. Robinson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's to you. Did yeah, he really? Yeah, he changed the lyrics, which is ironic because, I mean, he still uses, he says, like, cocaine, doesn't he? In, uh, in I get a kick from champagne. But, yeah, um, he changed the lyrics for Mrs. Robinson. So, to what? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> yeah, so now he changed um, Jesus yeah. to Jilly. Jilly knows that... Yeah, because there was this one called Jilly Rizzo, who was um, he ran a, a pub or a tavern um, in New York, and they were close friends. So he changed Jesus to Jilly, and maybe he thought that using Jesus was contentious in a pop song. Very Magooney. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So yeah, there was there was the change. Also, <laughs> apparently he was also Sinatra's bodyguard. Um, wow. Yeah. So I don't know. Pretty handy. Yeah, a name like Rizzo. Oh, wow. Rizzo. Rizzo? Yes. But, yeah, no, I wanted to talk about Eric Mivel's episode. Yes. Ticket to Eternity. This is one of the unmade episodes. Is this Christmassy? Well, it's secular. Ah, oh, that'll do. So you can find this, if you want, if you want to read the, the full script, you can f- probably find it online. Um, I think there's a PDF uh, of the synopsis on one of the Prisoner Blu-ray sets. I'm not sure if it's the 40th or 50th or both. Mm. But um, I know it's included. It's probably included on the latter, probably on the 50th, I would expect, because that has more yeah. features, doesn't it? Uh, including, Tons. Including all the previous features, I believe. I'm going to quote the, the Anorak Zone. And it says, When George Markstein left after the first production block of 13 episodes, somewhat unbelievably, members of the production crew were asked to submit ideas. He says, I say unbelievably, as they included a film librarian, which, of course, was Sloan. Tony Sloman, uh, and an assistant film editor. 
Ian Rakoff, who yes, of course did, went yes. on to write uh, Living, in Harmony. Living in Harmony. Scripts are actually commissioned from established writers such as Donald Tosh and David Whittaker, both uh, Doctor Who writers. But in the final event, it was only Rakoff's Western that made it into production. Ticket to Eternity and Friend or Foe were the ideas of music editor Eric Mivel. The concept that an editor of music will be asked to submit story ideas to the series does seem to show the level of desperation creeping into the production at that stage. As for the storyline, it's an interesting idea, certainly involving religion and number six being tricked into thinking he's travelled in time with number two. Oh, fantastic. But ultimately too far-fetched, and I can see why it didn't go any further as a serious consideration. And that's from anorakzone.com. It's a bit like the Avengers episode with... Peter Bowles, various wigs. Yeah, you can imagine it. Comes. So Eric, Eric comes in. This is like an elevator pitch. Number six goes back in time with number two, and meets these like Russian Orthodox priests. And uh, what we do with the green dome is we dress it up like this and all that kind of stuff. And they're like nodding, going too far fetched. And then like a month later, Peter Bowles does similar thing in the event. Well, yeah, and he's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Me, yeah as, as he's doing the pitch, there's a little writer in the background sat there silently writing yeah. away. This is gold. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if, I mean, yeah, I mean, what, what would be the religious part of that? The, the, the character, there were characters in it who looked like Greek Orthodox priests, you know, with the headdress yeah. and, and all but. that kind of thing. That, that's as far as I know in terms of synopsis. I mean, I don't have the book, but it's in the original scripts book, the uh, the, the one curated by Rob Fairclough. Fairclough yeah. yeah. Oh, great. I, I think it's in the first one. It, the second one is, I mean, I think they're both out of print uh, mm. and they, they fetch a, a pretty price on uh, on eBay. Gads, yes. I think the second one especially is, is, is quite a rare find. You probably won't find a copy this side of £100. For that, wow. but I had the first one and lent it to someone. I still have not it me, back. not me this time. No, it wasn't you, it wasn't you? <laughs> I, I need to ask him. Can I have my book back? Well, hopefully he's listening and feeling <laughs> desperately ashamed of himself. <laughs> but it also had the Outsider by Morris Farhey, the one where uh, he finds yeah, the crash yeah, pilot. Yeah. See, but that I mean, if if that had been produced, there would have been an element of religion introduced. Yes. Into the prisoner. Well, yeah, it's uh, as I say, it's um, a missed trick. Speaking of religion, Alex Cox. Bless him. He mentions this in his book, uh, I'm Not a Number, colon, Decoding the Prisoner. He says, It's been suggested that the prisoner is a religious prophecy. It's said that McGowan was a Christian, and the last words of his script for Fallout are those of the spiritual song Dem Bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. I find this... Uh, I was slipping into an Alex Cox impression there. I find this unconvincing. Having grown up in England, which is officially a Christian country, and where Christian instruction was compulsory in state schools, in reality... He says that basically argues that Christianity is all about love, essentially, mm. and love is something that really doesn't exist in the village at all. Mm. Uh, it's something that's almost commoditized. Is that a word? Uh, yeah. yeah, commoditized. Yeah. I'm going with that. <laughs> in uh, in Checkmate, when um, when they basically sort of hypnotize somebody to be in love with, with number six, it only really turns up in in, in Do Not Forsake Me, mm. which a lot of people think is just a, a, a mistake that he's yeah, in love yeah. with his wife. But really, it, it doesn't really exist in the village. I don't know. I mean, I don't think you can... Those, those tenets of, of, of screenwriting, it's like almost every single piece of film or television has death, yeah. has some love, has, you know, as part of their makeup. Mm. You know, you're hard-pressed to find a film that doesn't feature death as a narrative point. 
Yes. And love as well. I mean, it's that whole kind of cigar-chomping producer in America, isn't it? It's like, yeah, but who's love interest? <laughs> Who does he care about? Who does, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's got to be love. You know, what are you fighting for? Or why are you, why are you trying to get out? I mean, the, I can understand cutting all ties to the real world in The Prisoner. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know, you know, we don't even know really that he's a spy. You know, it's only alluded to. It's never actually specifically stated. Even when he goes back and meets Fotheringay and all them, it's not, you know, they're not saying actually we are MI6 or MI5. You know, it doesn't actually say that. And it doesn't need to. It doesn't say who he is or where he's come from or what he, you know, what his background is. But it doesn't matter, and I think that's that is part of it, though. That's part of the point. It, he's he's not a single person. He is all of us. He is the like we keep saying. He is the everyman, yeah. and you have to look at it at that point of view. So, the only love that you can have in there is is self love in in terms of the escape or, or protecting oneself, I suppose. Yes, it I mean, does. I it does by, by love, it's kind of romantic love. There's all sorts of types of love, but really, you can imagine it? Mark Stein. Being, you know, being saying we need to have some kind of love interest in there, you know, yeah. Whether it's that it's Angela Brown's character, or whether it's Rosalie Crutchley, or whether it's Nadia, that we have these elements that you are fighting for. I mean, there's also there is a protective quality in the Chimes of Big Ben. Yes, with in Nadia. that you know he takes her along with him. He feels sorry for her. He forges a connection with her. There is affection. There is fondness. You know, they they start to flirt, don't they? Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I think yeah, it's really if 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 some weird alternative time mm. shift and Roger Moore ended up playing number six, <laughs> there would have been a love interest in every episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. It's true. You know, but no. that was par for the course, wasn't it? It was the same with Jason King. It was the same with. Uh, you know, most of the ITC shows is that you get these glamorous love interests in. Yes. You know, Mike Pratt was always. Oh, forever! Had yes. a lady in, in his in his flat, didn't he? Yeah, but he, he never got anywhere because the, the, because Marty would always pop up just as he was sort of trying to impress <laughs> her with her, his amazing karate skills. So his, his appallingly furnished see. house. There's episodes we don't see where he's coming out of the shower, or he's, he's just putting his underpants on. Him. Sorry, Jeff, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Marty, Marty, for God's sake, I'm Starkers. <laughs> but it's true, though, isn't it? It's. Uh, no, but I think, yeah, love, it, it's, it is a cold series in that respect, that there isn't much affection or, or love within The Prisoner. And that's, I think that's probably why uh, Do Not Forsake Me is a little bit of a standout. Yes. And it also helps that he's not playing, Magoon's not playing number six in that, but it allows Nigel Stock to kind of shift the emphasis away so he can display affection. Yeah, it's quite, I think it's quite sweet. I think it works as well, mm. the fact that, you know, it, oh, lo and behold, he does have a wife hmm. because he doesn't. Um, in all the other episodes, there's no real need for him to talk about it. He's, hmm. he's, not, he's not. I need to sit down and get some feelings off my chest. <laughs> he's not that kind of guy. He doesn't want to tell him anything. No. So he's, he's, why would he tell him about his wife? Or, yeah. or you know, he, so it, it, this whole thing of uh, oh, this is, it makes no sense that he's got a wife. It uh, does. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. It's quite sweet. No, that you're. What are you quoting from? It's Alex Cox's... This is from I Am Not a Number by Alex Cox, the splendid... Just uh, hold the cover up again. This one? Yeah. Uh, Okay. So just for those who obviously can't see, a guy's holding up the the paperback, but it's... Turn turn around. There you go. It says, I am not a number, but the not is very faint. 
Yes. So it's kind of... Uh, it's It suggests two meanings. I am a number, I am not a number. Yes. Why do you think he did that? I think we should ask him. What a great idea. Alex, thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you very much for, do, for doing this. It's uh, extremely kind of you. It's a great honour. Thank you. Well, I've got one qu- first question to ask is this marvellous book. Wonderful. Was it your, was it your idea to uh, put the rather slightly sort of opaque knot within the number? Yes, because the publisher thought that the book should be called I Am Not a Number. And I thought that was a, that was a great title. But the thesis of the book turned out to be otherwise, that in fact, Magoolin's character is a number and embraces his numberhood. And so this was our compromise, that the not, not would be kind of not there and calling into question um, the prisoner's claim. I mean, there's a lovely bit in um, your chapter on Do Not Forsake Me, oh my darling. What a laborious title to get through, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to, not for the sake of brevity, but he actually, he actually genuinely has numbers. The, uh, I think. Yes. That of 73. Yes, completely sort of uh, negating the whole point of it. But uh, that's, a, that's a nice, lovely chapter on that because you're very good with Nigel Stock as well. You, I think we're all quite oh, fond of Nigel so Stock. Wonderful. He's such a good actor. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, to take it straight back to the beginning. I mean, when was your first encounter with the prisoner? I saw it when it first came out. Um, I saw all the episodes in the order in which they were first broadcast in whenever it was, 1967, 68. Yes, yes. You mean very young. That was just a little boy. I was like twelve years old. <laughs> Were you already a fan of the uh, the sort of the ITC shows at that point? Not really. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think I'd seen. I hadn't. I hadn't really seen Danger Man um, or the other things that preceded the Prisoner. This was like the first thing like that that I encountered, and, were, and there wasn't anything else like it. There wasn't. No. But it always says there was always a nice way that it sort of Trojan horsed all this wonderful sort of allegory and theory and, and, and analysis and into a show that was really a kind of action adventure show. In what way? No, I was in. As it was, it was a, a wonderful way for people to discover this kind of stuff fresh because they they made me think. Well, I'm just going to watch. Well, the substance, more substance, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, I, I like I like the saint and this kind of stuff. And you sit down and watch this, and it's like, what is happening? This is this is this is. Diff- so different. Do you think that people paid much attention to the production company in those days, though, on broadcast television? I mean, I th- if I was uh, watching television in those days, I mean, I was aware if something was made by the BBC, because the BBC was, was a channel of its own, but in terms of the um, what was on ITV, I, I don't think that the viewer was really aware of, of franchises or chains yeah, of no, no. title like that. You know, you wouldn't necessarily know that the Avengers was made by the same company as Danger Man. Jerry and Sylvia Anderson franchise, you would know that all those were done by the same producer because they were all puppets. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, what actually led you to years of, of, of loving The Prisoner and watching the series over and over again, but what, what actually sparked you into writing a book about it and trying to decode it, as you say? Somebody had given me a set of um, the prisoner on Blu-ray discs and I didn't have a Blu-ray player. So I, for a long time, I never saw them. And finally I, I, I got a player, which just broke yesterday. Um, <laughs> and that, and so then I was able to watch all the episodes. Um, and so I did again. 
and saw some of them in color for the first time. And then I, um, I thought, well, what about watching them in the order in which they were made? Rather than the audio, rather than the broadcast order, since the broadcast mm. order changed, you know, depending on when the broadcast and where the broadcast was, and so I did. I watched them in the order in which they were made, and it seemed. And then the series, then then, and then I, you could get the feeling of the series developing and leading towards the the last yeah. two episodes. Was it watching the the series in this new order, the order that they were recorded in? Did it did it sort of make it? A new sort, a new kind of sense to you, yeah. yeah. Because that was the order in which they were made, and the making of the prisoner was the process of its discovery. Because I don't think anybody knew at the outset uh, how it was going to turn out. Yeah. Least of all, did the um, these the, the the ideas that you've are in the book? Is, are these ideas that you kind of were mulling over for for many years, or is it something that just of uh, you decoded while watching the series for the book? I think I never really figured out. And when I first saw the series um, and we came to the last episode, I wasn't entirely clear on who or what number one was. Mm. You know, I suppose I'm still not, but I, but I, you know, I came up with a, a theory for a theory for it mm. in the book. But there are many mysteries, you know, and, and it's open to a number of interpretations. Oh yeah, and did you encounter any any pushback from prisoner fans about your interpretation? Yeah, I mean, some people really don't don't think that is wrong, you know, and quite vehemently feel that I that that that, that the theory that I put forward as to the nature of McGowan's character's employment and <laughs> the nature of uh, the number one mission was very offensive to to some people but that's you know people take this very seriously serious don't they but do, you, but do you think that in in them taking offense they don't understand the prisoner in that it should be open to interpretation and your interpretation is as valid as as anybody's interpretation well yeah you're right in the sense that amb- yes yes that if they that the series is full of ambiguity and you and and you think that it people who who like it would also prize ambiguity, but maybe not, you know, maybe there's certainty there as well, you know. I suppose there's been a kind of rise of gatekeeperiness. Yeah. But I mean, like Kai and I have discussed over over the years of watch, I mean, we discovered the show about 30 years ago. Every time we've kind of revisited it, we've had a different take on it, haven't we? We've, yes. we've thought about it differently and we and it, we get something new from it each time. Yeah. And different interpretations and different theories as to what we feel it's about. But that's personal to us, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, did you find, having watched it over the years, that you come at it from, like, when you first discovered it as a 13-year-old, and uh, then you watch it when you're 21 and 30? You start, you, it's been an interesting process for us, yeah. watching it <laughs> through these different stages of man. And it's always come out with something new. Did you find that? Well, the thing was, I don't think I ever watched the series in its entirety in between seeing it for the first time when it came out and then watching it on disc many decades later. I, did, I, I saw odd episodes, but I didn't see the whole season because I just, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a television and I didn't, and in those days we consumed our media differently. So you're a, an enormous aficionado of spaghetti westerns. Famously. Famously. Um, so what's your take or what was it like watching Living in Harmony again? 
having since become steeped in Western law? Oh, it's interesting that they they must surely have been to see for a few dollars more a couple of weeks, you know, before the shoot, you know, because there's a certain Leone-esque yeah. <laughs> aspect to Magoon's Western. And it's very entertaining. But I didn't, again, I think watching it at the time, I hadn't yet, you know, encountered um, Spaghetti Western so so vividly as, as, you know, I was about to in the cinema. So it was a bit, it was like a, another violent, weird Western, you know. <laughs> but you can definitely see the influence of, of what was playing in the cinema on, on the Goon and on his, on his crew. Yeah. It was one of those episodes where <laughs> it's a bit like living, uh, it's, a, it's your funeral where what was going on in the background was probably a bit more interesting. The release or non-release of Living in Harmony was almost more interesting than the episode itself, wasn't it? Well, there were some places that wouldn't play it. It didn't play in France and it didn't play in the US mm -hmm. um, on the first uh, screening of The Prisoner in each country. Why? Who knows, you know? Yes, various various uh, reasons <clears throat> have been postulated. Yes, no, we, we've, we've come across at least eight. All... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean... Having having watched them all again, was there? I mean, it's asking your favourite kids, but do was there a particular episode that really stuck out, or episodes? Well, I, I mean, I do like that one. Uh, do not forsake me, on my darling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, free for all. I think free for all is a very good episode. Yes, um, and it it displays. Number six is capacity for cynicism, um, and also that he is a dupe of these these immensely technologically powerful, cynical beings who run the village. And there's that marvelous scene where he's given, you know, some kind of dreadful electric shock by <laughs> the kindly old manager gentleman in the morning suit. Yes. <laughs> and after the electric shock and the drugs wear off and McGowan comes out of it and he goes, I do hope you'll be voting for me in the election. <laughs> and it's just a very good episode. I think that was the first one we gave a 10. Yes. Or a six. Yeah. Six out of six. six out of so it was irresistible. Have you found that the, the prisons had much of an influence on your, your directing career? I well, I think in a certain I mean, I mean the the McGowan's Influence over the series certainly encourages one to believe in the auteur theory mm -hmm. and to believe that an individual can have this shaping influence over, over a film or a television series. Um, but how often is that the case and how often is it, is it not? You know, but this was certainly very inspirational in that regard. You know, it, it, it definitely is... It's up there with Citizen Kane and Moby Dick, you know, in terms of uh, authorship. Yeah. I mean, McGowan is, is arguably one of the, an author, but who is an actor and a director, but also a writer, and a writer. producer. Yeah. Uh, he's he's yeah. everything, isn't he? Everything, yeah, because he was also, you know, I mean, he was the lead actor in the series and he was like either actively directing or covertly directing the episodes. And he was the producer. 
Yeah. I don't think Andrew Cyrus would would uh, no. would argue that. <laughs> yes. No, I think Mark Steen did the 50-50. It's very rare. I mean, it's very, I mean, it speaks to his energy and, and his relative youth and uh, his capacity to do those things and remain concentrated and able to focus on all those different areas, you know, and, and take off in the middle and go on acting. I station zebra. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Would you? Well, we've we've talked about this. Was it because I, I think you've disputed this in the book? I, we the, the the theory is that he went off to get more money to pay for the remaining four episodes or whatever it was. But surely he he wasn't stumping up the cash. It was an ITC production. Exactly. That's what I think. I don't think that that. I mean, that would have really muddied up. And I mean, muddled up and muddied up the. The, the chain of ownership and um, of income from the series. I would imagine that ITC wanted to own the series outright. And so even if it went over budget, ITC would be responsible for funding it. Maybe yeah. he just needed a break. He just needed to get away from that. He wanted to be a Hollywood movie actor. Perhaps he didn't realise, you know, because he was in the middle of it, he didn't realise how incredibly fortunate and unusual his position was. With the prisoner, you know, having such creative power over such an unusual series, you know, unlike anything that had been done before. And, and so maybe, but he didn't perhaps, you know, we don't appreciate these things even when they're we're in the middle of Do you think and the it? Lure, and the lure of a Hollywood movie with Rock Hudson in it, you know, was stronger than, than another episode of the prison. I suppose, yeah. especially at that period as well, at that point. Yeah, because they, they, I think it was the first 13 they produced and that was just the final kind of lap, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, if that was what happened, if they in fact were expecting another 13 episode series and suddenly it was cut down to four, then yeah. Um, and why did that happen? Did that happen because, did he leave for the States because of that or did he, did that happen because he dropped the ball and went off on another project in the middle of the series. I don't know. I mean, they're kind of complicated characters and, and we don't know really much about his relationship with Lou Grade, except that it was very personal. I mean, he actually knew the financier and would go and see him in his office and talk about the project, you know, directly with the guy who had the money. We, we spoke to Darren Nesbitt and, and he, he thinks that they despised each other towards the end, Lou Grade and Patrick McGowan. He thinks that Grade had had enough of McGowan. Maybe after, after a bit, but, it, but at the end of the prisoner process, he, Lou Grade, I think, gave McGowan's company a couple of million pounds to develop projects. Yeah, they were going to do brand, weren't they? They were yes. going to do brand as was one of them, yeah. And so I, so they couldn't have been on that bad terms if, uh, <laughs> if such a large amount of money changed hands, you know. I'd love to have somebody hate me enough to give me a million dollars. Two million, two, two million pounds or two million dollars for two different projects. That sounds, that's pretty good. <laughs> Especially at the time. Oh, yeah. Do you think, yeah. I mean, there's a, a lovely, well, it's a bit of, sort of somber note to the, the, the end of your book when you talk about his next step, I think you say here, he he didn't uh, he didn't change or develop as an actor. He didn't become a movie star, and you know the, the, what was where where he was at that stage of the prisoner and his later career. Do you think he just burned himself out with this? Well, possibly because it was um, an immense 
enterprise. Yes. You know, obviously he felt ambivalent about it part of the way through, but certainly, uh, you know, at the end, the, the, the concluding two episodes rally the thing in an extraordinary way and, and make it like the most interesting thing I've ever seen on television, even yeah. now. And so, so in that sense, what a responsibility. Yes, how do you beat that? Again, it's like Orson Welles, you know. How, his greatest misfortune is that he directed Citizen Kane as his first film yeah. at the age of 25. And after that, nobody really gave a damn about, you know, the trial or chimes at midnight or whatever else the heck he was doing, you know. But hey, that also, I saw Citizen Kane, you know. And it becomes <laughs> a, uh, impossible to replicate and... and uh, Yet it's what people expect of you. And so what could Magoon do after the prison? Well, Rafferty. Yes, the, the, the oh, short-lived. Yeah, it was still desperate. I've never seen Rafferty. He did, it was like a Quincy thing he did in the States. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I haven't seen it either. Um, no. you've, you've been States kind of bound for, for, for a while. Is the perception of the prisoner a bit different over there? Because I think over here, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of seems to be lumped in with the... A lot of the other the Avengers and whatnot, and oh, the ending was terrible, and he left. And is that is that the perception in America? I think it's. What, what do you think? I think well, I the only American take on it that I've encountered. I think there's some guys up in Seattle that have a prisoner weekend and have various prisoner oriented uh, things happening. But it doesn't seem to be as big of uh, a following for the prisoner in the US as there is in, in, in Britain or in Europe. Um, mm. So, but there's such a, you know, they're drenched with media even to, to a far greater extent even than the rest of the world. So it's not surprising perhaps that, that most people are unaware of the prison. It did, it did sort of turn up in the 90s. I think Magoon was, was behind it, I think, or had something to do with the idea of a prisoner movie. Was that was that was that something that was ever sort of was your name ever thrown into the hat with that? No, I wish it had been. I would love to have had oh, yeah. that hat. But really, I mean, it, I think McGowan should have done it. If there was going to be a prisoner movie, uh, it should have been McGowan's baby because, for obvious reasons, he invented that and he could take it somewhere even more interesting uh, in a new in a new feature. You know, so that would have been interesting. Have you ever got over to Port Marion? Oh, yes. I went there a um, long, long time ago when I was, you know, the youngster because of the prisoner was made there. And yeah. uh, so, oh, yes. Um, no, it's, um, yeah, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Bertrand Russell lived up above Port Marion. That's right. He had a, yeah, he had a cottage or something with a, you know, a view of the, and a, a view looking down at the bay and the city and stuff. And so that's all. Yeah, I think Buff Williams Ellis designed his house as well. Yes. Oh, oh yes. Exactly. He, he, he was number one. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. No one believes my theory about that. Well, thank you so very much. In fact, we actually bought your your book at the Port Marion shop. So it's excellent. Uh, oh, how cool! It's still, still, yeah. You're very much a presence there. Oh. And, um you've been you've been a great presence in our lives for many years, and uh, thank you very much indeed for this. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for um, thank you for buying the book, and thank you for going to Port Mary and supporting the prisoner. Well, that was fun. Oh, yes. That was fun. Incredibly daunting. Yeah. My, my, my mouth went dry a lot. <laughs> I was so terrified. <laughs> Not terrified. It was just 
I've he's been such a fixture in my brain. Yes. Because Movie Drome was so important. Mm. And not just for me. I know people like Ben Wheatley and Edgar Wright, they talk mm. about just it was it was film school yes. for us. Yes, absolutely. It introduced us to so many different films that we probably wouldn't have watched unless it was part of it, with it being part of the movie Drome season. Mm. You'd uh, you'd make it always it was it was appointment television. Yeah, for and, us. For, and for those who who haven't seen Movie Drome, it was it was kind of like a little pricey to a feature film. Yeah, very short, uh, five minutes or so, wasn't it? Five ten minutes. Sometimes. Yeah, there was just, it was a season of, of very disparate films. I mean, cult films is a mm. bit of a strange, nebulous term. And they were always this kind of um, heightened American Americana. Kind of set, weren't they? They're always like a diner, yeah, or, uh, uh, an alley or something with the quite neons, quite and Lynchian, that sort of yes, thing, that Midwest, like a dreamlike, yeah. But, oh, no, no, no. But then, yeah, it's it's you know, it's, if you said to a child, you know, draw an American diner for the nineteen fifties, for the nineteen fifties, you know, and with the waitress Alex Cox and, with this kind of slick back hair and the shades, yeah. you know, doing something funny. Apart from them, there was one where the could, sailor walks past on leave. <laughs> do, 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 do. It was that yeah. sort of uh, yeah. They're on YouTube. Aren't they? So you can you can find them on YouTube. They are. There's a guy on Twitter called Richard Luck, mm. who uh, if, very well well worth following on on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But he, he's also he, a writer, isn't he? Superb writer. Yeah. Uh, but he he keeps posting these uh, the the intros, <laughs> most of which are on not all, but most of which are on are on uh, YouTube. Mm. But then Alex Cox would basically introduce each film, and he wasn't always. It wasn't sort of this is a great film. Yeah. Because you know, I think mainly because he didn't actually pick them himself. No. Uh, it was something. I think some of those would be very different. <laughs> <laughs> he would, you know, if he didn't like something about it, he'd quite happily say, actually, this really isn't, uh, there's some bits of this film I absolutely hate. Yeah. And uh, it's nowhere near as good as whatever. But it was just that thing of uh, you know, Alex Cox's, and, and that's the first thing you think about with Alex Cox. Yeah. He was a punk director. Yeah. He had punk sensibilities. Yeah. He was, he was you know, angry and uh, he wanted to make challenging films. He had, a, he had everything that he needed to be in a punk, yeah, frame of mind. He had, he had attitude. He had. Uh, so one of his early successes was Sid and Nancy. Yes, with Gary Oldman. With Gary, well, glorious Gary Oldman. And, yeah. and if you the cast list, then that's brilliant. And yeah, people who've become more famous over time. Well, yeah. Look at I mean, Repo Man with Emilio Estevez, yes. Harry Dean Stanton. I mean, he always and a great film of his, uh, Walker, uh, with, with Ed, Ed Harris, Harris yeah. which uh, he actually put on movie drama himself. Because <laughs> it sort of tanked a little bit at the uh, box mm. office. Well, it was it was badly uh, badly released. Mm. I don't think they knew what to do with it. But he, they, I remember him doing it and actually reading a bad review yeah. in the opening and then throwing the review at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> and arguably, where Tarantino, Repo Man, arguably where Tarantino stole the idea of the uh, the glowing suitcase from. Yes, yes. Because the, the, the scene mis- with yeah. the car boot or trunk. Yes, being opened. The boot. <laughs> the boot. That's what we say. <laughs> In the UK. Yes, it's a great... I don't uh, know why it's called The Boot. It doesn't make sense, know. does it? No. Maybe that's where the people put the boot. you got the boot, the glove... Do you have glove compartments in America? I don't know if that's do they have me. gloves? I'm not in America. Americans, do you have gloves? <laughs> um, <laughs> glove compartments. It's like, who, who, who actually has gloves in Do you know what? I actually bought, literally, this, yeah. this was the first Christmas ever, yeah. I decided to put some gloves in the glove compartment. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted the, I wanted it to just make proper sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it <laughs> did you feel better? Not as much as I hoped it would. Yeah. <laughs> Reaper Man, actually, the DVD of mm. uh, the Blu-ray, the Masters of Cinema, mm. uh, Reaper Man, is fantastic. There's mm. so much stuff on there. 
he was talking about, he actually made a sequel of sorts called Repo Chick. Yeah. Which he had to, suddenly Universal sort of started phoning him up saying, you can't use Repo. Uh, we own Repo. And it was like, no, it's my film. I made a, it's a sequel to my film, Repo yeah. Man. And it was all because, do you remember this lame-ass film called Repo Men with Jude yeah, Law? Yeah, it was a more recent film, wasn't it? Was it? Like, it was like some futuristic thing where people f- grab but harvesting organs or something mm. like that which came and went but it was all about that so he was denied yeah. he wasn't able to use ridiculous a, what a, I know ridiculous ridiculous how ridiculous nonsense I suppose it's like Disney uh, copywriting all the dwarves names though isn't it are they yeah so if you go and see a panto you can't use the dwarves names can you not no they're all copyrighted for how long though what is it 37 that oh I don't know that's going to be a uh, Different copyright values, aren't they, for different properties and What's stuff? Like it, yeah, Winnie the Pooh's has come out of copyright, apparently, and somebody's made a Winnie the Pooh horror movie. Yeah. Have you seen Sherlock that? Holmes. Oh, that's. That's out of copyright. Or the, uh, anything by H.G. Wells. Yeah. Oh, yeah, hence on the horror channel or something, these yeah. kind of War of the Worlds TV shows with amazingly bad special effects. Yeah. I don't know why they've done a. They haven't done the Jeff Wayne. One as a as a movie, you know, it's like a. Well, I'm sure he could if he wanted to. Interesting. Apparently, he owns the the. Yes. And uh, when Spielberg did his, it had to be war. It was all something to do with. I mean, Paramount had the film. HG Wells actually sold the film rights, didn't he, to Paramount? So of course they did the 1953. Yeah, was with George it? Powell, the Powell one, and Gene Barry wearing the highest waisted trousers yeah. before he became cinema. the adventurer yeah <laughs> which has I, in my opinion the greatest ITC theme you, yes you, you did send me that and, and you, yeah you're, you're right it's, it's John Barry of course yeah, yeah. but it's one of the worst ITC shows <laughs> arguably <laughs> but uh, yeah so yeah I think I think Jeff Wayne could if he wanted to but well, well uh, he'd have to drum up a pretty big budget but it would just work yeah. as, a, as a you could even use the Burton narration yeah so getting back to the Prisoner Christmas special, that never existed. <laughs> well, the um, how would you how would what would you have as a Christmas special episode for the Prisoner? Well, for the Prisoner, considering I, though that there weren't really Christmas special episodes didn't weren't really a thing, were they? In they nineteen sixty seven, it's only sitcoms that ever get them, and mm. it's it's almost like the ultimate sort of um, award from the TV studio. You're that good. You're that special. Yeah. You've done that well. You can have a Christmas special. Well yes. done, you. It's well like done. A... Well done, Mrs. Brown. <laughs> oh, God. Climb up that tree and fall over. And make everybody <laughs> laugh. I want you to walk through that door with a tea tray, and I want you to trip over somebody and drop it on the floor. And everybody will laugh. <laughs> they will. They'll be showing it for weeks. It's, um... But yeah, I can't think of another... The, the closest I can think of was the Avengers, mm. which had a brilliant... Show episode called Too Many Christmas Trees, mm. one of the black and white ones, which has got the kind of uh, the, the Father Christmas of nightmares. <laughs> In uh, what way? Straight out of a, a Roy Wood video. Yeah. He's got this kind of uh, weird rubbery mask, yeah. and it's all very sort of... Uh, Steve keeps having these weird uh, hallucinogenic dreams involving a weird Father Christmas. Yeah. Uh, but it's sensational and a lovely touch. They've got Mervyn Johns in yeah. as well, who's the... Um, Bob Cratchit from the Alistair Sim Scrooge. Yeah. So that was a nice little touch. Well, I mean, it, it's it's a tough one. You'd have to kind of go back into the archives. But there was a there was a long-running BBC show called Christmas Night with the Stars, and that ran from 58 to 72, but of course that was variety, wasn't it? Yeah. 
1969, uh, ITV had the All-Star Comedy Carnival, which ran for four years till 73, uh, kind of copying the BBC show a little bit. <laughs> if you're going to look specifically at sitcoms, maybe um, Till Death Us Do Part, you know, with Warren Mitchell, who yeah. we've discussed before. <laughs> there was a, a Christmas episode uh, called Peace and Goodwill. Uh, which is, I think, regarded as one of the first full-length Christmas episodes. Oh, yeah. So you can, you can imagine... Uh, and here's the show. I wonder, he never turned up in The Prisoner, did he? Warren, Warren Mitchell. Mitchell. No. He co- yeah, because yeah, he was such a versatile actor. I wonder what yeah. his number two would have been like. Yes, he would have been a good number think two, wouldn't he? He's never really plays... The same part, apart from actually most ITC stuff, he was kind of because he was, obviously he was a lot younger than he was on yeah. television. He was made up to look older, wasn't he? Because he was playing Alf Garnet up like, until the nineties, wasn't he? Yeah, when he, I think he started playing Alf Garnet when he was like nineteen years old. Yeah, it's just, just, like one of these guys who, he never looked young <laughs> no. ever. But it's like Clive Dunn was like, I think he was in his 40s, wasn't he, when he started playing uh, Corporal Jones and they just made him look older. Yeah. I guess when he died, he only died a couple of years ago. It's like, everyone was shocked. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's still alive. <laughs> no, you got, I mean, the good life would be the. the yeah, the but I mean, these are all the 70s. One. I mean, talking the 60s, yeah, Till Death Us Depart, um, Nearest and Dearest. Do you remember that? Jimmy Jewell? Mm, I haven't no. seen it, but. Uh, they did an episode called The Ghost of Pickler's Past, uh, but that was 1969. So, of course, it's still not really a thing. Yeah. You know, Hancock's done a little bit of stuff, but Till Death Us Do Part has actually done a, a Christmas episode. But then we're into the 70s, and then that becomes the norm. See, I think ITC should have stolen a, a, a leaf out of the BBC's The Comedy Variety thing and actually done an ITC Christmas An ITC Christmas Carol! Yes. With <laughs> Richard Bradford as John Quincy Adams. <laughs> and Valerie Leon. Yeah. <laughs> and making their ITC debut, the five Angli. <laughs> Mick, Stu, Harold, Barry and Tony. That's their name. You could have, you could actually have uh, Marty Hopkirk would be the ghost of Christmas. <laughs> hey, you're not Jeff. How are you? That'd be amazing. That would be fantastic. I'm saying, in fact, that's, they've missed a trick there. That would be brilliant. That would have been great for bringing Randall them Hopkirk. The wise men, the champions. No, the the Randall and Hopkirk episode. So Jeannie is is Cratchit. Yes. And Randall's in a bad mood. They got no money, so he's making a work Christmas day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Annette Andre would not have been in the uh, Prisoner Christmas special. No. No. But no. That, I think the plot would be, Marty Hopko comes out and he, and, he, and he shows, number six, what life would be like if he actually tells them what they want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and it'd be fantastic. The Ghost of Christmas future. I'm surprised they didn't do that. Because they've done it with everything else, haven't they? They did it with an episode of Doctor Who, a Christmas special, didn't they, with Michael Gambon. That was basically a Christmas carol. Yeah, it could have been, it could have been the first one. Yeah, Blackadder. Jason King would have been the, uh, then the ghost of Christmas present, wouldn't he? Yeah. Merrily on high, I am now. <laughs> let, me, let me open my dressing gown and let's get out of here. <laughs> Come in and know me better, man. That would have worked. They could have had a whole thing. And then at the end, Lou Grade would have put... The, the chair would have spun round and it was Lou Grade. Yeah, honestly, yeah. It is me after all. Yeah. And, of course, in the 70s, you had uh, On the Buses, you had uh, Some Mothers Do Have Them. Yes. Like you said, uh, Morecambe and Wise. Good Life. They um, all did it, didn't they? They did. And it's a tradition that carried on into the 80s. You had Blackadder. Yep. 
you know, you had... So the Man of Bourne, the I Man think that had They were like, all doing it, weren't they? they? They were, including, of course... Yes. Duty Free. Ah, oh, of course they did. <laughs> what was it called? Oh, was it a Duty Free Christmas? It's really a Duty Free Christmas, And yeah. this is the only one... I think the irony of this, this Christmas special, I think it was the only one that was actually shot on location abroad. In Spain? Yeah. <laughs> I think they go it was to a shot different hotel. Yes, they do. I think, and uh, the, the, all the others were shot in a TV studio in uh, Yorkshire TV, weren't they? <laughs> they were. <laughs> and this this Christmas special was shot on film. It was. Did it, I bet you didn't. I bet you were. Well, I'm sure it had huge ratings, but uh, I bet you. Were. It's weird. It's like when they did Only Fools and Horses. They did some specials where they go to Miami. Yeah, Miami twice. Yeah, um, and that was on film, and there wasn't any laughter track. And we, I remember watching it, thinking. Oh, why is this not working? This doesn't work. Yeah, uh, but it was. I think at the time it was policy, wasn't it? That sitcoms had to have a laughter track. Yeah, but it was almost like a feature length one, which mm. again, it doesn't work because you've stretched it out past the point where it's not that many comedies that don't have a laughter track. And I think every single time that um, you know that's been a been pitched, there's always been a kind of pushback. I mean, The Office, Ricky Gervais, there was no laughter track. Mm. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy sitcom, no laughter track. Yeah, you know, but they don't—they don't need them. No, and it would spoil it having the laughter shot there. Duty yeah, Free needed one because you, you did need to be shown where it was funny. Yeah, but Duty Free Christmas was shown on Christmas Day in 1986, and it was the final episode of Yeah Duty Free. And I think we we've got to pay tribute to Duty uh, Free Christmas. All the cast returned, as you'd expect, <laughs> with with a couple of guest stars, John Barron and Damaris Heyman, who was uh, well known in Doctor Who circles. Oh yeah, yeah. She was in the John Pertwee episode, uh, The Demons. So there you go. So does does she end up having an affair with Keith Barron? I d- no, she doesn't. No? No. What, did, what was the synopsis for that? Have you got the synopsis? I think I What's have. What's that on that piece of paper? Uh, that you've got out there? By, by sheer coincidence, yeah. I do. They go to... I've half the synopsis, which is... Hmm. If you go on the IMDb page... David persuades a reluctant Amy to spend Christmas in Spain, though in a more upmarket hotel than the San Remo. When Amy sees the Cochrans, who are the guests of the wealthy Stonely Jacksons, she regards the trip as more than a coincidence. <laughs> She's not daft, is she? But busies herself getting into the Christmas spirit by putting up decorations, forcing David to play Santa Claus and exchanging the expensive presents he has bought for Linda with cheap rubbish. Unsurprisingly, David and Linda attempt to sneak off upstairs for some forbidden moments. But more surprisingly, they're not the couple seen, finally, kissing under the mistletoe. Would there was watch. a twist, wasn't there? There was, there was a twist. Who, uh, yeah. David, David and who? David and Linda, but it was Amy and... Uh, yeah. No, no, David and who? Linda! Hey! hey! But actually, he said Amy more, didn't he? he like, yeah. Amy, Amy, <laughs> but Amy. <laughs> but talking of Christmas traditions... I thought it might be quite nice, actually. I know it's not prisoner-related, but what the hell, it's Christmas. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine. Did you know that the, the Welsh name for Father Christmas or Santa Claus is Sean Corn? Yes. <laughs> Which translates as John the Chimney. <laughs> <laughs> I love Christmas traditions, especially around the world. Have you heard of the um, the Dutch one? No. So the Dutch one, they have Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas. Which is where we get Santa Claus from. Yeah which is derivation of St. Nicholas, isn't it? But, yeah, they have this character called Svarte Piet. Oh, yeah? Who is like an elf helper, who looks like an extra from the BBC's Black and White Minstrel Show. (laughs) 
So you can imagine this kind of <laughs> pig kind of hat with a feather and his black face. Oh, oh nice. With Terrifying. And politically. Well, it's clean. Suspect. Right. Yeah, but they've been trying to ban it in the Netherlands well, because they think it's a, a black face. Well, yeah. But the argument is the argument is that the character's gone down the, the chimney. You see, and it's so, but it's very controversial. A little, oh, yeah, very, yeah, very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'd walk away from that. Yeah, um, so that's about to Pete. and <laughs> I'd hope I'm saying that right. One of my favourite Christmas traditions is the Spanish one. Oh yeah, of uh, El Cagana. Have you heard about this? Oh, what a- so if you, because you know, in Spain they have um, they have Christmas extends into January, doesn't it? They have like the, the King's Festival in January. So their nativity scene. Very similar to ours, except if you look at a Spanish nativity scene, there's a little little person having a shit <laughs> <laughs> called the Cagana. And they're basically just somebody squatting down with the pants around their ankles and the li- little Mr. Whippy, right. brown Mr. Whippy beneath them. And that's, that's El Cagana. Really? Yeah, Google it. It's honestly, that's a which, Spanish tradition. Which kid gets to do that and then play? <laughs> but they do, like, you can get Donald Trump ones and you can get Boris Johnson, you know, you can get the Queen... Right. Yeah, it's big business in uh, in Spain. The oh God. Maybe that's where we got the Yule log from. Yeah. So did you know the Russian Christmas isn't until January? Yes. It's Christmas Day is meaningless. Uh, yeah. Uh, the big thing is... So they have their yeah. shifted, don't they? Yeah, yeah. But uh, can you think of any more? <sighs> oh, really. I know one. Mary, Mary Lewid. Mary Lewid? Is, yeah, the Welsh that... one. What happens then? <laughs> Mary Lewid is a... I should know How can I put this? Fool. This is a this is a, a Christmas character with a <laughs> honestly this is true. Imagine rent a ghost, yeah, <laughs> Dobbin, yeah. but replace Dobbin's head with a horse's skull. <laughs> put some bulging white eyes in the eye sockets, and and some kind of white kind of ghostly Jesus dress, Christ. and just go and knock on people's doors on Christmas Eve. R- really? Yeah, that's Mary Lewitt. I think we should bring that back. Let's, let's, what do you let's, mean, let's bring it back? It. Have we not seen any? In... The, I, I cannot remember the last tradition. time a horse's skull knocked on my door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> aiming to, where, where do they do that? Is that a like region-specific thing? No, it's a very old Welsh tradition. I don't, of, I, yeah. Absolutely you, Well, it requires children. having a horse's skull, doesn't it, in the first instance? I was going to say, yeah, where on earth I know. would you get there? I know. Let's nip out to the farm. Have you got any horse's <laughs> skulls going? Oh, you arm. again. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of any other Christmas traditions? Um, only just piling on weight. Um, <laughs> I quite, I don't know, just just suddenly deciding that um, largely inedible food is is, it's good for is absolutely <laughs> essential. You're talking about tubs of uh, sweets and... Uh, oh, God, yeah. The 70s was the watershed. It just, the, the floodgates opened. Yes. And, and everybody was doing Christmas special. Well, that was, I think, the Morecambe and Wise effect. Yeah, Morecambe and Wise. Because... BBC you, and ITV. Suddenly you were getting sort of 26 million viewers yes. and stuff yeah. like that at Christmas. Which, I mean, if you, if you look at the barb ratings today, mm. you know, you've got shows like uh, Strictly up there, like 10 to 12 million today, yeah. you know, because then there were only three channels. Yeah. You know, and probably half the amount of people in the UK, but a third of those people in the UK were watching television. Yeah. You know, whatever it was, 25 million watching... EastEnders oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. episode. I can't Bond remember what the numbers are now. Bond movies, you get stuff like, you know, 20... I think yeah, but like, don't forget, they were... There was like a... Yeah, Star Wars didn't air on ITV until three years after it was on at the eight, cinema. 82? No, longer. I think it was 82. I think I think it was 80... 
82 was Jaws was on TV for so that's, the first That's time. five years. That's seven years. What year did it come out? Oh, 75. I think for, it? Certain, yeah, for yeah. certain big films, because they kept re-releasing them. That was mm. the other part of the, um, uh, the, sort of the release pattern. I remember mm. sort of every sort of three years for a big film like Jaws, it would come mm. back in cinemas because yeah. there was no, you know, no videos. Yeah. So I think that may have pushed the, the TV things back. I mean, the Bond films weren't on TV till the 70s, mm. I don't think. The first, I mean, the first time Dr. No was on it, it was like a big, big deal. Yeah. I, you know, it's still it always. Do you remember in the TV Times, the Radio Times, you would actually have the James Bond film. Yes, and then it was which one? Which one? Yeah, Moonraker. Ah, oh. Spy Who Loved Me. Eighty two. Moonraker mm. was on Boxing Day, nineteen eighty two. That was seventy nine, wasn't it? So, yes. So that's three years. So that's three year that's, gap. That's, yeah. yeah, bizarre, isn't it? It is. And apparently, No Time to Die is on New Year's Day this year, which is almost like barely two years. Yes, there's, have you seen that clip on... There's two clips, actually. There's one from America, and it was like, it was like you know, the stars of this, of this channel this season, and it's like everybody who's famous in America yes. in, in this one period of time. Clara's Leachman. <laughs> and, Robert Goulet. Yeah. Elliot Gould. You know, it was like everybody. <laughs> Judd Hirsch. It was everybody from that, that time period of the 70s. You know, they all came on, waved, and stood on this massive kind of staircase. Yeah. It was everybody. They and, are. And have you seen the British version? And no. it's on This Is Your Life. No. <laughs> and I saw it on, on Twitter. And uh, it's basically everybody from the 1970s appears in this, like, Sid James, Robin Asquith, <laughs> Una, Una Stubbs, Isla Sinclair. Oh, God, I'd just happily watch that. That means nothing to you unless you grew up in Britain. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was as exciting as people probably just... Couldn't close their mouths no. for days after that. It was but it's just... like if I ever heard the Doctor Who theme or the TARDIS materialisation noise, on the, I would run into a room. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, I remember once sort of like being upstairs, getting my pyjamas on as a, as a kid and here I'm racing down. And it was This Is Your Life. It was uh, Peter Davison. Ah, nice. Yeah. He was the first one I can remember the regeneration scene. Mm. When Tom, Tom Baker, Baker turned yeah. into Peter Davison. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Was he in, what was he in, was he in, all creatures great and small. Yeah, Christopher Timothy. Mm. Christopher Timothy used to be mates with my dad when they were young. Really? Yeah. I suppose, yeah, he's local, isn't he? He's a, a Slangothlan lad, I think. Yeah. Well, well like... when Hitchhiker's Going to the Galaxy, the uh, stage, the radio version mm. of the stage play came to Clandudno. They had guest narrators for the book. One of them was Christopher Timothy. Yeah, oh. when it came to Clandudno, it was Christopher Timothy. Ah. I think they, they kind of um, cast based on location. Yeah. And Does he had, still live around here? Had, I don't know, but we had Christopher Timothy. Well, if you're listening, my dad says hello. <laughs> <laughs> I think you still owe him two bob. Yeah. So that's it for our first of a few specials. That yeah, we're gonna we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll think of some, some, uh, some other things coming up in, in the new year. Yeah, well, we're going to head over to Port Marion at some point, aren't we? That's right. Yeah, we're going to do a sort of walking tour and we'll, yeah. sort of, we'll let you know. Uh, when we're doing that, so if anyone if happens, anyone's there, happens Paul to Marin meet, turns up, we'll yeah, just, you come and join us. Come and join us. We'll stick you in the podcast, yeah. maybe, and grab a coffee or something. Um, Probably so sat on the piazza. Yeah, <laughs> game, game of human chess. With two men looking uncomfortable with microphones. <laughs> Can't miss us. <laughs> being ushered away by security. Yeah, not having any permission to record there. No, we, we, we'll get permission before uh, we go. Uh, um, but yes, uh, I think it just uh, leads us to say a very, very Merry Christmas to you. Happy ever, as Paul McCartney said on that Christmas record, we wish you everything you wish yourselves this Christmas. 
One little note, we should, um, I feel we should mention this. I'm sure he's not exactly a household name, but uh, Tim Beddows, you, if you know, don't know the name, you'll certainly know his work. He set up Network, uh, whose masterful uh, Blu-ray uh, I, I, yes. I bought on the back of this and discovered The Prisoner anew. Very sadly, he just passed away for, for, for just no reason. It was a terribly young age. Uh, and he was the greatest guardian and steward any series could possibly hope for. Uh, he did enormously good work, and uh, it's just very, very sad. So, very uh, condolences to to his family. It's, it's uh, ex- extraordinary, sad, but his leg his legacy is is extraordinary. So there's nothing left to say except just a very, very merry Christmas. Be, Be seeing you, you. Instead of you, very old partridge there. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Actually, have you got any ideas for what we're going to do next? Oh, I've got, I've got an idea. I, just, I can't tell you anything. Okay. Right. Well, so you want to lock up then? Yeah. Okay. I'll lock up. Okay. That's fine. Right. right. Oh, that went well. Yeah. <coughs> there you go. Right. I'll see you later. All right. Take care. Oh, Chris. Hmm. Just one more thing.